Thanks for being with us today. Um, so you're going to talk to us about sort of the relationship between philosophy and film. Um, I'll just maybe we should just begin with a sort of a bit of a background chit chat about um, sort of where you sort of place yourself intellectually and sort of what are your intellectual origins. Sure. Uh, thanks, Pat. Um, I guess how I th- it, serendipity plays a big part in all of this. I remember. Um, Back in the day, when I was at university, stumbling into um, uh, a guy called Anthony Easthope. And Anthony Easthope was part of the first wave of UK critical theorists, uh, along with Catherine Belsey um, and uh, Rob Lapsley, people like that. And um, he was doing a critical theory undergraduate course on cinema, on film. And I was doing a quite an open degree at the time. Uh, I could pick and choose the elements and uh, stumbled into this. And I just love that way of thinking about cinema and um, philosophy or critical theory, you know. Uh, and that was my first kind of like encounter with it. And I, and I loved film. I loved film. I liked philosophy. <laughs> um, and this, these, this kind of brought the two things together um, in, in that kind of critical theory domain. What is it you love about it? I suppose... A number of things. One, one was the the way in which these these two movements were reciprocal. I like the reciprocality of it, both of of the the film and philosophy. And I'm, and what I, I don't mean by that is that there's some kind of like you know film is is a philo- is philosophy, you know, uh, but rather the way in which when you were thinking about cinema, the different ways. That philosophy and indeed history, uh, sociology, you know, could be captured in an image um, and would allow you to reflect and think about it, you know. And and by looking at film, it captures a lot more than just the story element. Yeah. So you can you can watch a film and you can think about how um, how society orders itself, you know, so ideological kind of readings. You can look at a film and you can think about how. Uh, uh, psychological issues, you know, and lots of different types of cinema captures up lots of different kinds of uh, of ways of thinking about the world. Uh, uh, horror cinema, for instance, the amount of studies that people kind of come out of that thinking about psychology and thinking about well, why do we like images that scare the bejesus out of us? You know, what what's going on there? You know, so is it is it like? I mean, is there some things you think that distinct about the medium of film that draws you to it? Like, I mean, it's kind of a complete medium, if I'm thinking about it in a very basic sense. Like, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe theatre and opera can compare to it for integrating all the different art forms, like, you know, craft, production, writing. But the difference there would be those are transitory and, and repeated every night, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas a film is got a sense of it being like a novel, in, in another way, in that 
uh, it's produced once and can be copied endlessly number of times and you're still going back to that the one unique object whereas everyone knows with theatre with um with opera and stuff like that it's the performance on the night yeah but it's that it's the that production and the way that director and that that company has brought it all together for for that run so you know so there's there's distinctions there even though it's multimedia in a sense um it, it's got that so it's like some things unlike other things um uh you know it's like music as well music you know the song is produced and captured on record, but some people say, well, I go and go to the band and listen to them at a gig, and that's more visceral kind of immediate experience. So isn't it, cinema isn't like that on its own either. I mean, it's own thing. Of course, the opposite question to ask is, you know, if you start going, what is cinema? Oh, my word, you, get, you end up down a rabbit hole with that one as well, yeah? Okay, uh, yeah, well, maybe we won't ask you. <laughs> because, well, if you do, because then you go, well, what about television? You know, is that cinema? Well, or streaming. Or, it's streaming, yeah. Or you go to an art house and you see uh, sort of an art installation. Is that cinema? You know, so it could get very tricky. I mean, that's one of the questions that doesn't really bother me, to be, to be brutally honest. What is cinema? What uh, does lots of questions I suppose what do you find uh, what you find important about uh, asking these questions about cinema that you're interested in uh, yeah let me answer that in a, in a again in a slightly roundabout way in the the thing that that I hated about critical theory and cinema that I, I began to notice as I, as I started working in the field for quite a while, and I was teaching it in that, was the kind of aspect of, well, you think you should like, you think you like this film. Let me tell you why you shouldn't. Which was really prevalent in cinema studies, film theory, film reviews, and indeed, absolutely, yep. So it becomes a kind of position of, you know. Here's a great film. Um, you've enjoyed it. And then you go into a classroom and somebody goes, ah, but it's a bit ideologically suspect. Or or there's a problem here. Or, you know, do you know what the director got up to? Or the, you know, so many reasons. And the, the big ones here are going to be the ideological ones, yep, that are really going to, to play out. And you saw this particularly uh, come out during um, uh, the Kaheda cinema period post-68, yep where they kind of like demarcated different types of films a priori yep so here here's a classical type here's a you know documentary type. here's all these different types of films which ones are good and bad which ones will this magazine cover you know and you can imagine the categories of which they would cover diminished quite a lot and it just seemed to me um a particularly sad way of dealing with a, 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 something that you that you started from a position of love, yeah? yeah? You started from a position of the love of cinema and, oh, I want to study cinema and I enjoy cinema. And after three years of education, you come out going, well, it's all shit, isn't it, now? <laughs> you know, where, you know, oh, God, it ever looked. Is there anything I can watch that isn't ideological? And, of course, everything's ideologically suspect. Yeah? yeah? So, there, there is no human on this planet that's going to escape that one. So is it a question for you, then, of, like, you know, when you watch a movie... Or- 
you know, or a particular genre movie, whether it's horror, documentaries, you say, or, I don't know, crime, or Western, cowboy Western, um, cowboy and Western, is it, is, it, is, it, is it about, you know, is it about sort of possibilities? Is it what, what does cinema make possible? Is that what's... What, what, what I suppose it's, it's more visceral than that. I mean, at the end of the day... Um, if I encounter a film that I like, even if I'm not too sure why I like it, that's the the, the moment to think, well, why do I like it? What what can I do with it? You know, how can I think about it with philosophy? And um, and that that puts you in some strange positions because sometimes you know there is a kind of some written laws. <laughs> sorry, unwritten laws in the whole uh, area of film studies and cinema and film philosophy, where there's kind of like, well, there's things we look at and there's things we don't, yeah? So, Russian Ark by uh, Alexander Sukharov, great uh, um, modern and modernist masterpiece. That would definitely be something you could look at. Doctor Who? Oh, <laughs> did you really want this... You know, people will tell us that we can't do that, you know, because it will make us look bad, like, you know, those kind of Mickey Mouse degrees and all of this, that and the other. So is that postmodern, you're happy to take up that postmodern blurring of the distinction between high and low art? I think that's absolutely, I mean, to be, to be brutally honest, that, that's a, that's a, that's a, a rationalisation I'm not even willing to make. I don't. I, I really just am starting with, well, that was good. Wow. Yeah. That was good. That, doesn't it? You can always start with admiration. That's, that was good. There, yeah. What's going on? What yeah. can I do with it? Yeah? yeah. What will it make me think about? What What if I start looking at it even deeper? You know, sometimes you look at things a bit, watch it a few more times, think, ah, okay. I was I was just on a high then after a load of coffee. You know, <laughs> uh, perhaps I was a bit wrong, you know. And equally, you know, films you don't like the first couple of times around, you might watch a third time you th- You've got a suspicion that there's something going on there that you've missed, and you know through rewatching you you discover something different. So you know spending time with a, with a film that you weren't particularly taken with, and enjoyment. You know I'm not talking about the same kind of enjoyment here. You know some things that you, you the impact you only think that's brilliant the impact, and there's other things going oh, that's a bit curious. You know I wasn't in love with it, but it's an interesting thing. What can I think about with that? So it's quite a versatile medium then as well because it affects you. Differently at different times, you know. So the the response to the movie that comes out will affect you uh, differently. Say if you saw it in nineteen eighty at the height of Thatcherism, and or if you saw it ten years later at the height of Blairism. Say totally. Oh well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's a that's a really good point. I mean, there and there are you know you mentioned one factor there. There's the time of your life as well. <laughs> there's what's going on in your life. There's there's what other things are happening. There's indeed what you're already studying and looking at, you know, and all of these things interweave and overplay on each other, you know. And you, you, and this is why the question of why I liked it probably isn't even doesn't interest me as as little as what is cinema, because it's not really looking into that that interests me. But what here's this this thing that I like. What can I now do with it? What will where will it lead me if I start looking at it a bit more? Do you know, it might lead you nowhere and you dump it. Or, well, okay, so, oh, wow, so this is where it's leading me when I'm starting to think about this film. Okay. 
Um, so that might be a good place to move on then, Dave, um, I, because I know one of the big intellectual influences on you is the French philosopher uh, Gilles Deleuze. So maybe we could start by, well, firstly, talking about him and then talking about how he uh, uh, works at the intersection of sort of uh, cinema studies. Um, so firstly, who was he? Who was Gilles Deleuze? Well, uh, Deleuze was... A late twentieth-century philosopher, French, um, and you, you you called him fringe. Interestingly enough, um, probably a lot less now than 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 he was. Mm. Uh, the number of uh, people engaging with Deleuze is, is quite phenomenal these days. But um, he was he was interesting. He came out of uh, philosophical rather than cultural theory or critical theory tradition, which is the one that I was more familiar with. Um, and he was... I suppose I suppose one of the ways to look at him is is the three... Fa- we could cut it up about the three phases of his writing. So he begins really as a philosopher of history, looking at um, the ideas of certain other philosophers, writing books about them. So you've got books on... Um, uh, the late 19th century, early 20th century philosopher Henri Bergson. Um, you've got books on Nietzsche. You've got books on Spinoza. So he was he was really interested in writing about other philosophers. Now the interesting thing about those philosophers that he was writing about, and this so he's this we're talking about here the 50s and 60s. Yeah, he calls it an anti-lineage of philosophy. Well, indeed, he? absolutely. So these were the philosophers that people weren't really studying at the time. <laughs> they weren't in, you know, there's a there's a re- in France the way in which you um, encounter philosophy even from high school. There's a certain tradition, certain canon, and um, Bergson wasn't really in there. Nietzsche certainly not post-war. Yep, um, and uh, Spinoza, yeah, but 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 the but not central. Um, and he was looking at these as, a, as another type of... He saw a different tradition. He saw a kind of another tradition of philosophy going on here, what he will call at different points a minor philosophy. Yep. Um, and he was, tr- he was really interested in these, these writers for a number of reasons. And you'd have, we'd have to get deep into each of them to do that. But let, let's just say what, in a kind of more general sense, yeah? What he was quite interested in was the way in which they were interested in science, philosophy and literature, um, the way in which they were all uh, non-dualists. Um, what do you mean by that? In the sense that they weren't in, 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 in the Cartesian tradition. Yep. They, you know, Deleuze will look at these people as being very interested in the way in which bodies work. Uh, so... Uh, they were pushing at the boundaries of metaphysics in the sense of trying to turn away from uh, a, a metaphysics. People will argue with, with 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 that statement and how successful those philosophers even were in doing that. But 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 that was their that was their trajectory, no matter how far they got. And this really interested Deleuze, and it catches up things like empiricism, naturalism. You know, taking the sciences really seriously as both being somewhere we need to, to start thinking, but also not allow it to capture us totally in our thought. Yep. Um, and, and also a certain irreverence to the traditions of the mainstream 
philosophical community. So I think that's, that's that was why he was interested in those philosophers. And that's kind of phase one, if you like. Um, everything changes with difference and repetitions, which comes during the, the late right, 60s. That's his kind of, his kind of, one of his magnum opus. Magnum Magna, Magna opus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't speak Latin. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, everything changed with that. He, he says this was the first book he tried to do philosophy. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a maddening book, but also, it's also one that, that once you get your teeth into, it's very difficult to turn away from. And what he's, what he does there is try to say, well, okay, um, I want to now try and articulate what I've been doing with Nietzsche and, and Bergson and Spinoza, etc. I want to try and do that in my own way in the modern world, given that where we're surrounded by the kind of culture, you know, post-existentialism or, or you know, in the wake of that. Um, how can I how can I do this? Um, and what he really tries to do there is is try and work out how um, we can talk about the genesis of bodies. Okay? okay. The genesis of So how thought. bodies come to be. Is that- yeah, and a body, you know, we're including brains and consciousness and everything in bundled up in that little package. Yep. How do we account for that? Yep. So... You've got to think of him as being radically atheist, yeah, in the sense that, in the same way Nietzsche is, where, you know, once after the death of God, it's also the death of metaphysics, yeah, it's the death of idols. Um, you've got to see him being post-Darwinian in the sense that, you know, we know evolution is a fact. We know we came from the stars, yeah, so you've got to take that seriously. Um, so you, you, how do you put all of these different things into play? How do you account for, you know, our understanding, our being in the world, you know, given where we are in the century without looking back? How do we take it forwards? And, um, and it, it drives him to do three things in that book, essentially. One is to look at time. One is to look at space. And the other is to look at consciousness. And see how these uh, things are arrive arrive, and how we get a sense of identity. So, how do the how do the, how does temporality, spatiality, and consciousness give us a sense of I, of me, and where I am in the world and society? And everything and, that goes in time, yeah, space, yeah. And and how does that give that? So that's that's what he's trying to to do a basic, but then there's the critical aspect. So the other is, is um, well, you know, what is this sense of I really? And that's where the genetic part comes in. You know, the I doesn't arrive fully formed. Yep, um, we there is no soul. So how can we account for it? How do we get senses of identity and then challenge that that those that sense of there being a solid I? Yep. Challenge that sense of there being, you know, a, 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 a direct causal effect, cause and effect flow of time. Yep. Challenge that sense of me being the centre of my own universe in space. Very Darwinian, yeah. Yeah. So looking at all of those different things and, and you know, Nietzsche plays in these, he's interested in Freud at the time as well, you know, or at least early Freud and drives, which, you know, big arguments that Freud turned away from his early work on drives later on in his career 
kind of got mired down in Oedipus complexes and all of this, that and the other. So Deleuze is very interesting in the early kind of drive theory coming out of Freud. Obviously, that's in early Nietzsche as well. Um, so looking at how all of those things come together and how we arrive at a sense of I, and then challenging that notion that there is a real sense of, of I as well. And then the, you said that the, the, that's the second phase. Is there the third phase, you said? Yeah, so it's just worth mentioning in that second phase as well. You know, um, he's he, he approaches this problem in a, in a number of different ways. So not just science, but he puts another book out called Logic of Sense at the time, which is kind of more literary based. And he's looking at the same kind of questions in a different way there. Um, yeah, the third phase is really where he loosens up a bit, really, to be honest. And He met uh, Guattari. Yeah, and they, these kind of bleed into each other. There's a book called Anti-Oedipus, which you could really kind of see as a kind of more sociological, psychoanalytical version of difference and repetition, to be brutally honest. Now, again, a lot of people would challenge me on that, but, but I think it, it fits in that phase. The second book they write together is called one called Thousand Plateaus, and they wanted to write a bestseller, you know. They wanted to write a bestseller philosophy book. You know, how can I get people interested? In it? I open with it, bring it uh, with a with a wonderful image. You know, um, you know, people say that the sun rises. Sometimes you want to talk like everyone else. We know that the sun doesn't rise, yeah. And philosophy sometimes you can get caught up in those questions of exactly and trying to pin something down to the nth degree and speak very carefully. So how do we speak like other people? How do we how do we write philosophy in a world, you know, where we can communicate at, with non-philosophers but still retain integrity of philosophy? And I think that's when Deleuze, and he's, he's written on art before, but that's when he starts engaging a lot more with the arts. Um, so you get a book on Francis Bacon, the painter. You've got the the two cinema books that come out in the early eighties. You've got um, you've got um, a book on Kafka again that he writes with 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 Guattari as well. Um, there's a lot of things going on like that, and um, and there's a book on Foucault and a book on the Baroque. So he he starts really kind of like stretching philosophy to its very limits. Yeah, I mean, he's he's. I mean, he was always, as I understand him, he was always someone who was very happy to be creative and put ideas together that didn't traditionally go together and try and create some new kind of synthesis. And, I mean, one of the things that sort of always interests me about Deleuze is that he's, and correct me if I'm wrong, he, but he's, he's someone who brings together sort of the insights of science and the insights of metaphysics and he kind of has a sort of a metaphysical materialism. Would, 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 uh, would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah. No. again, <laughs> I, I think, I, let's let's break that down. So the first bit, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Take Taking science really seriously, you know, um, seriously, not in the sense of, of an optimism about it, but, but taking it really that you've got to engage with it um, and the arts as well, you know. So bringing all of that stuff together, you know, it's there in every book. Some books are more kind of like... Assemblages uh, is one of his favourite words. Assemblages, absolutely. I mean, we are assemblages, his books are assemblages, et cetera, et cetera. This, that comes in in the, in the middle of the second period, you know, towards the third period, that kind of phraseology. But yeah, absolutely. He'll call it syntheses earlier on, yep, which long tradition of using that word, you used it a moment ago. 
So before he's using assemblages, he's using the word synthesis. Yeah, so not an analysis of stuffs per se, but bringing things together in synthesis. And we are syntheses. We are syntheses of our body is a synthesis of of elements. Yeah, but, um, of thoughts, of history, our society, etc., etc. Absolutely. I suppose where where the he's he, there's a radical empiricist tradition that he's that he's certainly in the wake of. Metaphysics is 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 a is an interesting one though. You know, um, for for a lot of people that becomes problematic when you're positing uh, a metaphysics as being prior to science or being above science or in some way. Um, more fundamental. reaching towards an idealist kind of perspective, you know. Um, but is he in, is he in, is he interested in ontological questions? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So maybe that can help bring us back to the question of film, then, which is sort of your 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 specialist branch of uh, Deleuze studies, I guess. Um, well, tell me about the. Um, the cinema books. He's got uh, books. Uh, what are they called? Cinema: The Time Image and the Movement Image. Is that right? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, firstly, before we talk about what you've done with those, put the ideas in those books. What are those books about, and how do they sort of come out of the things we've been talking about? So yeah, absolutely. So he writes uh, Movement Image, the first book. In a, it's published in eighty three. Uh, the Time Image books published in eighty five, and they're translated into English very soon afterwards. Um, those two books flummoxed everybody. They flummoxed uh, philosophers because while people, uh, philosophers had, serious philosophers had occasionally looked to the movies and cherry-picked a few movies maybe to, to say a few things about, nobody had dedicated that much time, two books and several years of their life, to uh, writing about them, taking them that seriously. Um, so they flummoxed the philosophers and they flummoxed uh, the cinema studies, film theory people as well, because they didn't follow in the tradition. They weren't, um, as I was referring to earlier, they weren't of this kind of critical tradition in the sense that they were looking at ideology. They were looking at, they weren't looking at ideology. They weren't looking at psychoanalysis. They weren't uh, involved in kind of Saussurean uh, investigation of signs either. So they flummoxed everybody. Um, and for a lot of time, um, they didn't really, they weren't really looked at by the philosophers and they weren't really looked at by the cinema people. Um, and that's where you come along. Yeah. <coughs> well, but there were many, many people before me. Um, but it's worth saying that why? Yeah. Why were, why weren't they, why weren't they, in, why were, weren't the cinema people interested in them? Well, one of the, the, the interesting aspects is that um, the difference between the two books. and So what does the movement image book look at? It looks at, let's call it classical cinema. Yeah. So it starts with um, uh, a look at early American cinema, early German, early French. But, you know, there's, there's chapters on the Western. There's chapters on film noir. There's, there's chapters on pretty standard Hollywood. And the ideology in cinema studies at this point was that classical cinema, by its fact of being classical cinema, yeah, a priori, it was bollocks. <laughs> it was 
It was, it was, it was something we don't look at. And Deleuze took them very seriously. Yep. Said, what's going on in these films? Yep. And he didn't have one answer. He had many different answers. Um, and the second book, Time Image, is on more modernist cinema, as people would call it. And um, so I suppose that kind of more fitted with the general discussions going on at the time. Uh, so when people did, when cinema studies people did start looking at, at these two cinema books, they kind of looked at the two books very differently. They saw the first book as being quite critical, you know, um, and they saw the second book as being the one where they should put all their effort into. In other words, they assumed those books into their tradition. They read the two cinema books through their tradition quite uh, easily. So you see the, in, in the wake of that, um, people using Deleuze in a very traditional kind of way. So what interested me, I think, was um, a very different, very different way of looking at those two books. In a sense, the two books are a bit of a ruse, as far as I'm concerned. There's there's a one discussion on cinema, and um, the question really becomes uh, it to is really foregrounded in a number of the things that Deleuze will say. You know, he will say there's no hierarchy of difference here between movement images, classical cinema, and time images, modernist cinema. You know, they essentially says they're good films and they're bad films. Um, and that was refreshing to me. He was a cinephile, you know? Mm. He's loving the films that he's looking at. He's loving them old John Ford westerns. He's loving them old film noirs, yeah? As much as he's loving modernist directors like Tartofsky and Uzu, um, and there's people in liminal spaces like Wells, you know, the neo-realists, you know, and he's interested in good films, you know, and what happens when we look at them? What happens when we take cinema seriously, you know? And uh, so I found it incredibly refreshing to encounter these books, yeah, which weren't uh, dour, which were filled with a love of cinema, you know? And uh, I think that's where a lot of people start with with Deleuze, you know? Even the ones that got, kind of got captured up in this kind of, what I call a false dichotomy between classical and modernist cinema. Yeah, so what is the, what is he, what is he, what is the philosophical dimensions? I guess that's what I'm interested in. What are the philosophical implications of these books for cinema, do you think? I mean, is it, or am I putting the question incorrectly? I'm kind of asking what is you know, what does he have to say about movement? What does he have to say about time? And Or would it be better to say, how do the films that he's interested in tell us something about time and tell us something about uh, movement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, to be honest, there's, there's two kinds of questions there. So let's, let's take the philosophical one first. So what he... And I suppose the, the way to approach and answer this really briefly is to go back to one of his major influences and, and the way in which Deleuze works. So we talked about synthesis before and about the history of philosophy. And this aspect of his work doesn't go away. So the cinema books are basically reworkings of uh, matter and memory from Hen Henri Bergson, 1894 book. And what Bergson tries to do is say, well, look, there's this world of, of matter. Yep where there are perceptions, uh, affects, and actions. We perceive the world, yep. There are internal 
affects going on within us and we then we act upon the world. And then there's this other world of thought, of consciousness. And on first blush, this sounds like traditional dualism. But, but Bergson's uh, project is to undermine that and talk about how um, how matter and what he calls memory or thought or spirit, whatever you want, he uses some some words like that that will that, that might jar the modern sensibility. Uh, how those how those two things can be said to work together. In a sense, this is what Deleuze brings to the cinema books. Yep. So he sees um, the movement image as being based upon a very kind of like uh, traditional set of coordinates. You know. We perceive the world, we're affected by the world, we act upon the world, yep. Um, and and then another time image cinema is kind of like the world of thought, spirit, consciousness. The the, the problem, the, the interesting way in which Deleuze then tackles the problem, which leads us on to the second part of your question, yep, is what does he bring to cinema then, yep, by doing this? So... He, he, he makes an amazing leap here. He makes an amazing leap, as far as I can say. What he does is, he says, well, look, there's lots of different types of film, and we can look at these not from the perspective of what type of directors there are, auteurs, you know, the style of a director, not from genre, are they a Western, are they a, are they a science fiction, but we can look at them through these Bergsonian ideas. So what is a perception image? So how, how does this occur in cinema? What is an affection image? Well, how, does an, how do effects get translated to the screen? Feelings, emotions, if you like, you know, and the underlying intensive states that those are kind of like created, the, the, the emotions kind of build out of. And how do actions? And then how does memory and thought make it onto the screen? And he breaks this down into a number of different types of image. I would, I would argue there are 44 different types of image across the two different books. Yep. Um, and he will then say, well, films are composed of all of these different types of images, but one dominates. So we can see films that are affection image films, action image films, so like, time image as films. As we were talking about before the recording, you, you mentioned the example of in a noir movie, Humphrey Bogart is kind of the dominant anchor image, uh, which is which 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 runs through the movie, and then there's sort of a lot of uh, subservient images that work around it. Mm, absolutely. I mean, let's let's take a, a concrete example of a perception image. So, you know, how there's a film, there's a central character. Okay, so Deleuze calls this a solid perception image. In the sense that all the image in the film are they anchored around this one character. Like characters in every shot. You mentioned Bogard, film noir kind of movie. You're, you're following an investigator. Yep. You know as much as they do. Yep. The camera never leaves that person. All the images are there for that person. And that's, you could see how that constructs a certain kind of philosophical position for the spectator. Yep. Think about an affection image movie, right? So there's another one. Uh, one of Deleuze's great examples is uh, is an early is a, is a late silent movie called uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh -huh. and this is just a film made up of shots of her face going through the most terrible kind of like uh, torture and interrogation and horrors, and you feel the emotions. So you think about when you watch um, a, a movie like a melodrama, yep, 
which which takes you on an emotional journey. Yep. Or an action movie. Yep. That's got a very different kind of way. Of, yeah, that people perceive stuff. Yeah, people are affected by stuff, but it's translated into action pretty damn quick. Yeah, and you get that gets played out in different ways. Duels between good and evil. It's very different than encountering a, a film where you're with a, a central character and you're feeling their emotions as it goes through. So he'll look at those things. And those are kind of make up the uh, kind of movement image. He then moves on to the time image and says, well, how do how does thought make it onto the screen? Right? And there's obviously some traditional answers it's, it's here. So fascinating, how to film thoughts. How to film thought. Well, I mean, the, the fascinating one is how to film emotions, of course, yeah, which was the affection image. You can't film internal states. So you cut them together with perception images. You see a horrible thing. Yeah. And action images. I'll do something about it. But you focus upon the emotions that person is going through. So he's kind of dealt with those difficult questions. Thought obviously is, is, is an even more difficult one. But there are some, there are some answers that, that, that come back to you quite quickly. One is a flashback. Yeah. Yeah. So there you are. There's a character and, you know, Ooh, the screen goes all hazy like that and maybe drops some colour to black and white and you see the activity and then woo, it comes back to the present. Yeah, you have, you film thought, job done, you would think. Well, no, Deleuze will call that a movement image as well. All you've done is you've visualised, you've actualised the thoughts of a character. Think of another one, dreams. Yeah, that's a dream sequence, yeah. Yeah, that's another one. But there's other, there's other ones. There's a, there's a film called Secret Window that does this really beautifully. It's a Johnny Depp movie. And here's another way of filming thought. So Johnny Depp puts, he's trying to give up smoking. Uh, he puts his cigarette on the desk and goes out the door. And all the while the camera just sits there. He's gone out the door and in the foreground are the cigarettes. And he's gone out the door. And it's holding that shot. Mm. Now let me ask you, Pat, what's he thinking about, even though he's not on screen? <laughs> no idea. He's thinking about those cigarettes. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah, thinking. Yeah. <laughs> a minute later, the door opens, he comes back, he grabs the cigarettes and leaves. Yeah. yeah. So there's another way of thinking thought. Mm. So Deleuze will look at different ways in which thought, but these are still movement images. Yeah. So, so the question then comes, how can, how can we film Bergsonian memory? Yeah. That, that philosophical that kind, kind of thought, consciousness. Yeah. And his answer then comes in the second book, The Time Image. Right, that's it's, it's that's really fascinating because, I mean, I suppose the conventional way of explaining is how do you how do you how do you film thought and it's just you get a really good actor like Daniel Day Lewis or Brando or whoever, and they do it by virtue of their acting. But he's saying that it's the actual medium. I think is off so much more effective than just. It's that, all of these things that, coming yeah. together. Absolutely, it's all of these things coming coming together. But even but the, but the, even the art example you're giving there, that still would push you into the movement image. You know how do you how do you how do you film yeah, memory? Well, we talked about flashbacks, okay. But that's kind of the return of memory. Yeah, how do you film consciousness, the possibility of consciousness? And this is what he'll attempt to answer in the second book. And his answer is um, through contradictions, paradoxes, problems, if you like. Um, in other words, he's returning thought to the spectator. So, in those movement image films that we've just been talking about, yep, you're located with a subject. Yeah, there's a subject created for you that you can identify with, more or less. There's situations you can identify with, more or less. So you can see how this is resonating with difference and repetition now. There's, there's situations, you're following a plot, 
you know, if the movie feels like it's losing you, it'll give you a bit of a recap. You know, all of those things are in place to allow you. In other words, you're thinking with the film. Yeah. So when he's interested in the time image, it's films that problematize that kind of thinking. Okay. So they're films that are hard to understand. They may even be dull and boring. Yep. They may be contradictory. If you think about a film called Run, Lola, Run, that does the same thing three times but changes the outcomes. Yep. Where's the answer there? Yep. Um, films where the characters disappear, where um, you get long shots, where there's a lot of ambiguity comes into the film. In other words, the, the, the thought now, yep, is um, it's going to require you to 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 read that film and different cultures, peoples, times will necessarily have to read it differently. And reading some, and in the, indeed, in the most strongest time image films, you know, they, they actually resist being read. So, so that's, yeah, but the resistance to being read is also an incitement to read, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're willing. If you're willing. If yeah. you're willing, you know. So it's a case of, well, I, guess, I guess he's saying that sort of the best cinema, if we can use, put it that way, or the power of cinema lies in its capacity to affect the audience, make the audience think, um, well, think of them as, think of the audience or the spectator, as you say, as some uh, as somebody who is uh, active rather than passive, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. Now, the mistake to, to make here would be to go, well, obviously... The movement image, as I described it, is is for passive spectatorship, and the time image is for active spectatorship. In reality, when you read the both books together, or so I claim, yeah, um, things are a lot more complicated than that. Because, as we said, cinema is composed of lots of different images. You've got perception images, affection images, action images, these mental images of flashbacks, dreams, and you've got proper thought images. You know, as we've just described, you know, the way which uh, a contradictory paradoxically. And he'll make 44 signs or 44 different types of way in which things come together and way in which things disperse. And he'll say every film's composed of all of these. Every film is composed of movement images and time images, but which one rises to dominance? So that's on one hand, yep. So there's not this kind of like a purely passive spectatorship of a film and a purely active spectatorship of a film, yep. And the other one is just the just the the logical point here that if all you want is a film disruptive and paradoxical thought, does that make it good? Yeah. yeah. Sure, so yeah. You, you might go, well, you know, all these kind of classical movies, they're for a spe passive spectator and all of these modernist movies are for an active spectator. And now I can align these with good and evil. Yep. Are you really going to tell me that every modernist film and disruptive film ever made is a work of utter genius? Because I've sure seen some that are pretty damn poor, you know. <laughs> so even on a, even on the pure logical perspective, that doesn't doesn't play out. So tragic about that, isn't there? And he, absolutely. By the same token, he's not saying every film is good. It's not a kind of a Nietzschean mule yay saying everything, you know. So. Um, it's more on a case-by-case basis, so to speak. So this is where it then drives you back to the philosophy again. Mm. Questions of 
time, questions of space, questions of identity. And sometimes it's very important to have a kind of film that will give you A, B, C, D, E. You know, if you think about a filmmaker like Ken Loach, doesn't deal in uh, ambiguity in the slightest. <laughs> yeah? But absolutely essential, important filmmaking. Yeah? So then maybe that's a good place to ask about your your own specific books on... Uh, you've used these books yourself. Uh, yeah. So, like, I mean, uh, one of your, I guess, main works is uh, Deleuze Japanese Cinema and the Atom Bomb, The Spectre of Impossibility, which came out in um, uh, with Bloomsbury in 2014. Is um, How are you using Deleuze there? And, or what are you taking from Deleuze there to talk about those themes? I suppose my starting point with that is uh, another commonality in film studies. So say you're going to write a book on war movies, American war movies. Your general thesis is generally going to be is here's all these different movies, this is what they do. If we look at all of these, this group of movies together, we can say something interesting about them, uh, the way in which we can homogenise them. What really interested me in Deleuze is all of these different signs, all these different types of films. So what happens when you take that to a subject? What's the, what do you get out of it? Um, and it seemed to me through a load of uh, serendipitous kind of like activities, I landed on the idea of Japanese cinema, uh, atom bomb cinema. Uh, lots of reasons for that. One is... It was an area that's not really been studied. And another is that the the kind of ethos or the, or the received notion of Japanese atom bomb cinema is it's all shit. Okay, um, so I quickly decided that wasn't the case. Um, and what it seemed to me, by using Deleuze here, we could start to say, well, actually, there's lots of different kinds of films that deal with the subject. So what happens if you start looking at different types of films through the lens of Deleuze's different signs? So what happens if you start using Deleuze to look at atom bomb cinema? Well, it allows you to look at the films in lots of different kinds of ways. So what interested me was the way in which you could start looking at all of these different types of films through these different signs that Deleuze uh, creates, if you like in his cinema books. So straight after the war, there's some documentaries made by the, the, the Japanese about the atom bombs being dropped. But the Americans move in, confiscate the films, um, and talking about the atom bomb becomes a real problem. So you get the rise of monster movies like Godzilla. Yeah. Um, but then there's kind of a backlash against that. Um, more leftist, um, independent filmmakers start making uh, social realist films about the bomb. Later on, he gets caught up in anime. And it seemed to me that to squash all of these films together in order to say something along the lines of, you know, Japanese cinema of the atom bomb has this one kind of message coming out of it. Yeah, and this is how we can kind of reduce it down to one core kind of understanding of the way in which this horrific event uh, has impacted the Japanese nation. Um, I wanted to go the opposite direction. I wanted to look at the way in which 
these disparate, myriad kind of movies. Yep, captured up different aspects of the bomb victimology. Yep, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? After so, such a horrific event, that sort of um, was how do you take it? I mean, you, th- you think about some of the, you know, there's a. Again, let me give you a concrete example with Godzilla, because it's an easy one to to kind of like see how the traditional reading happens, and then what I tried to do with Deleuze. So the kind of like standard narrative of Godzilla, and you can see this is quite easy. Look, here's here's a Japanese city, here's Tokyo, and it's been stomped by a monster and destroyed by a monster. Yep. What's that? Well, there you go. Monsters, the atom bomb. Seems quite easy to equate those two things together. Yep. Look at how this is tra- this 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 monster has traumatized us, etc., etc. And. It seemed to me that there was a number of problems there. The, the movie begins with the monster being woken by atom bomb testing, yeah, in other by the Americans in in the in the sea off Japan. So, in other words, this monster isn't really the atom bomb. It's kind of what arose due to American intervention in Japan. You think about history of Japan, how it's a closed nation, America moving into the Pacific Ocean, coming up against, opening up Japan in the in the late 1800s and, you know, kind of threatening them with trade, you know, trade with us or else, which was essentially the message. Seems to me that the monster that arose, seems to me what, what you, another way of reading that monster of Godzilla is the Japanese emperor, is the Japanese fascism, the arrival of fascism. Um, so you, there's different ways in which you can read the film. When you, Godzilla gets killed at the end of the film, he's killed by, guess what, another kind of bomb. So the bomb saves the Japanese people from the emperor. Yep. So there is a big reading of um, the, the atomic event within Japan. Yes, it was the most horrific thing that happened. But a, a lot of Japanese people, even quite quickly, were, thank God it stopped the war. Yep. How else we were going, you know, the nation was heading towards suicide. Equally, I'm not saying that is the right reading of the atomic bomb. I'm saying that is one way in which this film kind of emerges from a historical perspective. The interesting thing, of course, is there's lots of Godzilla sequels. So I look at the way in which they kind of go, hang on, well, if the monster keeps returning, what is that telling us? Is it the emperor that keeps returning? And then the monster becomes friendly. Yeah, but over about after about ten films, the monster is the emblem of the Japanese people, and they're fighting the Americans again. So everything kind of gets turned around again, once again. These movies kind of take you on a on a narrative journey of emotions, so that you can see how we can then move into to uh, sort of like these action movies into movies that are more affecting and and movies that will challenge in a different way. Uh, so uh, give you an, another example, you see. I then, as well as looking at that, I look at the way in which thought, we talked about flashbacks a moment ago and dreams and various other kind of mental phenomena, the way in which they're rendered on screen. So you can start to see how these these things start coming back, more kind of like movies about people remembering the atom bomb and being caught up in the wake of it. So you get much more thoughtful kind of films, you know, how they've affected people psychologically. There's a Kurosawa film called I Live in Fear. And it's about an old businessman that um, he, uh, every time a plane goes over, every time there's thunder and lightning, he thinks it's the atom bomb again. 
Yep. So it's, in other words, the, re- the return of this memory is just bearing down on me. And it kind of, his family tried to get him put, locked up in a mental asylum because they think he's going insane. So you could see a different kind of film, the way in which it affects people in a, in a different kind of way. And you can just keep going. And that's what I do with the book. I basically, you know, look at uh, around about 20 films, all as being different ways in which the atomic bomb has affected different communities at different times in different ways and different ways in which films kind of capture that up. Yes, so, okay, so that's that's really useful. Um, now, your other uh, book on Deleuze and Cinema is called, it's right here in front of me, Deleuze's Cinema Books, Three Introductions to the Taxonomy of Images. So um, could you maybe explain a little bit what you were trying to achieve in that? Yeah, I suppose... That's, a, that's, that's subsequent to the book on mm. uh, Japanese cinema, is it? Is it, is it building yeah, it? yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a different take in a sense. It, the, the first book was told from the, the side of cinema and history um, around a unique event, around a demarcated set of films. I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to tell a story of heterogeneous reactions, if you like, and how they can't be uh, sort of like brought together in a totality that you can have a very clear... Well, Mary Beard, the wonderful, wonderful uh, historian, um, says something like, the job of an academic is to make things more complicated. You know, the biggest and worst thing is making things simple. Yep. Isn't, doesn't Deleuze say that in the Nietzsche book? He says that the art of philosophy is, the task of philosophy is dis- making people disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I, 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 I've missed that. I'll have, I'll have to go looking for it. Um, yeah, you could see, you could see the, the, the project there is, 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 had a, I was looking at history, yeah, and the way in which these, I won't try and, if you read that book, the first book, the Japanese cinema book, you won't come away with it going, oh, well, this is what the author thinks about the atom bomb. This is all the causes of it or all this, that and the other. What I wanted to do was build up a kind of a disco ball, glitter ball of different perspectives that kind of like emerged out of cinema as a kind of like mass collective effort that I didn't then try to homogenise. There was a story, there was something going on there. The second book's very different. What I kind of wanted to get to grips was, was I really wanted to work on the idea of the taxonomy. So there's some wonderful, wonderful um, books that kind of look at Deleuze's cinema books, movement image and time image, um, starting with one by Ronald Bogue in the late 90s, um, all the way up to one by uh, Phyllis Lee Coleman, uh, just after 2010. But none of these books really took the taxonomy seriously. Uh, did I say Bogue? The first one's by Roderick, sorry. Uh, the, the one by Ronald Bogue is probably the most, uh, says it most clearly. He says at one point, well, there's all these taxonomic elements in Deleuze's book. Uh, absolutely. But they're not important. It, it doesn't matter how many there are, and it doesn't really matter um, how they all fit together. The most important thing is what he's trying to do here. You know, I can I, I can agree with that last bit. The, the, the important thing is what he's trying to do here. But the question was, well, why then are all those elements in play? What was Deleuze trying to do? And let's take that seriously. Let's look at that. So what I try to do in, in the more recent book is look at that from three perspectives, which is why I called it Three Introductions. It's really three different books 
inside one cover. And the first one is a, a genealogy of the of the philosophy that underpins the cinema oh, books. What are talking about? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I look at Henri Bergson as being the kind of one that sets the groundwork for, for that movement image, time image. He then works with a uh, with a very peculiar philosopher called um, Charles Sanders Peirce. American pragmatist. American pragmatist. He changed, actually. He wouldn't call himself a pragmatist later because of Henry... Henry uh, not, sorry, William James. It's kind of like stole the term off him, so he saw it. So he called himself a pragmatist. But he was one in, invented this kind of, like, idea of there being lots of different kinds of signs. Went a bit mad with it in the end. Came up with about 56,000 different types towards the end of his life. Uh, Deleuze doesn't go that far, obviously. So the movement image book is, is, is based around that. How all of these signs kind of add up to our way of dealing with the world in a pragmatic kind of way. And then um, the second book, The Time Image, is, I, I claim, based upon difference and repetition and the different areas of time, space and consciousness and the way in which Deleuze allows those to play out in difference and repetition kind of surface under the organising structure of the second book. So you've got Bergson and you've got Peirce for movement images and Deleuze's own difference and repetition for time images, you know, and both of those fold back upon each other through Bergson. So that's that's the, the first introduction is looking at those coordinates and, and looking at what those, you know, what, what those uh, philosophical aspects, what those, those philosophies are trying to do and indeed how they all come together and you can look at them uh, in one hand. The second introduction is... Um, Basically, looking at each sign and taking each sign as taxonomy, uh, yeah. yeah, and then just saying, well, what is a perception image, and what is a solid perception image? What is a liquid perception image? What is a gaseous perception image? And trying to do that in quite a short to the point kind of way, step you through each of the elements, and there are forty-four. And then the third introduction is, um, and it's worth saying, I don't talk about any films. <laughs> in the first 150 pages of the book, which uh, uh, cinema studies people might find a bit frustrating. But there was a real reason for that. What I didn't want to do was kind of like close down thought on it. Oh, so that's what an effect... Oh, so that's what that is, you know? A quick and handy example of what I'm trying to say. I wanted to think about the coordinates. So what I do in the second book is I provide a load of diagrams which kind of visualise the concept in a visual way where we don't have to turn to an actual film, which allowed me in the third part to kind of go, well, look, what happens if we now switch the focus? Let's start from cinema. Let's start from a film like uh, Uncle Boomy, you know, uh, uh, an an art house, um, art installation film. Yep. What if we start with that film? Where does that lead us? And what sort of sign does it rub up against in the cinema books? And then when we do that, where does it take us? Minions, you know, the the the, the Despicable Me, little yellow things. What happens if you start taking that one? What happens if you start taking Harry Potter seriously? Where does that lead us in the Deleuze books? If what happens if you turn to a film like The Mechanic or? Uh, Star Trek. What happens when you go to Enter the Void by Gaspar Noe, or a, or one of the dogmy kind of you know uh, naturalist films? Where does that lead you in the cinema books? So starting from cinema, yeah. So the first two introductions, the first half of the book, you know, is the philosophy. Yeah. 
genealogy and a taxonomy. And the second one, he says, let's start from the films and then let's encounter the lures. And I suppose this comes back to the absolute basics of what I think film and philosophy is all about. And what is that? <laughs> was that a leak? Was that a leak? <laughs> natural segue. Yeah. Was it a natural segue? Or was I leading you to ask me that? I don't. <laughs> um, so, I think the most important thing for me here is that there are there's three kinds of ways in which you can talk about film philosophy. And one is that, you know, starting, if you like, from the side of cinema. And that's, so here we've got a film and we want to talk about it and we can go to Freud and grab some Freudian concepts and we can show how that film works that way. And the trouble is with, you can do that with every film. Yeah, so Kierkegaard and 12 angry, angry men are angry men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you could do, you could do, you could do any film for Kierkegaard. And in a sense, if you do that, all you're ever going to do, you know, is take a film and read it through Freud, through Marx, yeah. yep, and get exactly out what you've put in, yep. Um, and I haven't got a problem with that. I think that is an absolute valid way and a good way of working with cinema. Um, but it is a process and it is a method, yep, and it is a specific way of working with film and philosophy. Um, the other is, if you like, coming from more philosophy angle, well, here's a, here's a philosophical theory. I want to talk about Aristotle. I want to talk about Plato and the cave, you know, or, you know, you know the, talk about the matrix or whatever. Yeah. Yep. And so let's find a handy film to illustrate it. Yeah. This is a really difficult philosophical problem. Let's go to a film. Just use it as an example. People go, Oh, yeah. Okay. I get it now. And then you can move on with the philosophy and go deeper in. Yeah. Now, in both these cases, I haven't got a problem with them. But in the first, it's film using philosophy to kind of like open it up and like try and uncover the deep meanings that are under there. Yeah. And in the second case, it's philosophy going, well, you know, we can use film as an example and illustrative. And they seem to be the only, if you're doing film philosophy, the only two moves you can make. But I do think there's a third way, and that is rubbing the two together, you know, so not I'm not looking particularly for a deeper meaning in any film, you know, and I'm not particularly wedded to any particular philosophical move. But using using what Deleuze does, because Deleuze will talk, use Kierkegaard to talk about affection images and the way the subject is formed. He'll t use Nietzsche to talk about the way in which uh, history arrives in mon its monumental or antiquarian or critical forms. He'll use lots of different philosophers who use these as jumping off ground. So what happens if you use the Deleuzean method, as far as I'm concerned, apart from the fact you're not just repeating Deleuze, but you're using Deleuze's way of rubbing cinema and film together to create sparks. Yeah, it's like, what happens when you bring these two things together? Where does that lead? What does that lead you to talk about? When you look at a torture porn movie, you start writing about it through Deleuze and next thing you find out, you're writing about Abu Ghraib and you're, you're writing about um, how torture works and people's reaction to it and the way in which it's in, captured within a political kind of situation and the narratives that kind of play out around that. Is it any wonder that torture porn movies arose at the same time as the Iraq war? What happens if you take that question seriously? 
So it's a much broader, richer, more sort of historically nuanced way of thinking about cinema. That's what you're aiming at in, in this book, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, to, to I don't want to read a film to say, well, look, we can find the same thing everywhere. And I don't want to use the... the uh, films to say, well, look, this is how we illustrate Deleuze's film theory. Yeah, because Deleuze wasn't doing that. What he wanted you to do was, if you think about it, as I was talking about, was create uh, an atmosphere for thought. So, in if you look at cinema as a whole, it is a time image. It's a disparate, heterogeneous mess. It's an anarchic multiplicity. You know, and different kind of focuses will take you off in different directions and follow those directions. Where do you end up? What is uh, what do you think is the future of cinema? Are you excited by it? Absolutely. I mean, because <laughs> because we've seen every time someone has proclaimed the death of cinema, that cinema has just it's responded. Like a novel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, one of the things I tried to do with the, with the three introductions was only use films. Well, I put it this way: you know, from the sec from the second century of cinema. So, you know, if, if movies started in eighteen ninety five with the first with the first kind of like experiments, you know, and the first kind of like thirty second kind of clips being shown of a tra train arriving at a station and somebody standing on a hosepipe, that you know that brings you up to nineteen ninety five. So what have we had since 1995 to 2015? And these were all films, of course, that Deleuze, writing in the 80s, hadn't covered himself. So that allowed me to talk, to explore 44 films of the last 20 years through Deleuze, you know, everything from, as I mentioned, Minions and Doctor Who all the way through to, you know, things like um, Uncle Boomy um, and uh, Marxism Today documentary. So... Look what we've had in the last 20 years, you know. The human imagination and the human, human impulse to create and to experiment and to try new things is, is as limited as we want to make it. And, as, you know, and is, is, an, is unbounded as the, as the greatest creative minds. And the more people, if there's going to be a death of cinema, yeah, it's going to be by restricting the filmmakers that we have. So this is why you want to invite more people in to be making films, yeah? Which is why any kind of movement that is encouraging um, more women to get behind the camera and take up that, more women to be running production companies, you know, more women writing scripts, you know, more women being involved in the critical aspects of it. Absolutely, because we've got at least, you know, one... Uh, uh, 50% of the human population untapped as yet in the history of cinema. So, it's, <laughs> <laughs> things are looking up, basically. Yeah. Things, you know, we, we've barely begun. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.